hear our prayers. Hear our prayers. Well, we are in week three of our summer series, Encountering Jesus through the book of John. And I have always loved the book of John. Maybe part of it is because it's, it's tied to Josh and I's love story. We met in Bible college, classic. Um, and I think I've mentioned before that Josh and I met in Pauline epistles, so a class about the letters written by Paul. But while we were dating, we took a Johannine literature class, which is about all the books written by John. And in this class, I feel like Josh got to see the real me, the real Neely McQueen in that moment. Um, I was a 20-year-old kid with a lot of questions. And even though my professor was a New Testament scholar, if he said something that was unclear, I wasn't sure I believed or I had a lot of questions about, I was the kid that was raising my hand all the time. And probably teachers, there's a fine line between like the kid who's actively paying attention and the kid who's annoying, and I just like to hang out on that line a lot. And so I feel like Josh got a, he got an idea of what he was getting into. Like, I have questions, I'm not afraid to ask them, and I will disagree. Even if you have the right answer, I will find a way to disagree. That was kind of the thing that he probably learned about me. Uh, but just go ahead and ask Josh, who got a better grade in that class, uh, if you want to. Um, I, I only suggest that class because that's probably the only one I got a better grade than he did in, in than, than the other one, so just, just ask about that class. But I loved this professor. He was the first one that really kind of helped me understand the power when we understand who wrote the book, why they wrote the book, and then how that is revealed throughout the book. And so in honor of Professor Blaine Charette, let us start with some basic questions about the book of John. Because John is a unique gospel. It does have some of the same stories and uh, miracles and preaching from Jesus as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's clear kind of right from the beginning that John is going somewhere different. He has a different angle. And we know that because of the very first three words he says. John says, it opens with, in the beginning which is the exact same three words that the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, opens up with, in the beginning. And John picks this very familiar Hebrew phrase, Hebrew scripture, to grab the Jewish reader's attention. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he start that way? Well, most biblical scholars believe that the book of John is distinct in that the author had a very specific goal. He wanted to communicate to the reader that the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures pointed to, Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the one. He's the one they've been waiting for. But he's going to look different than they had imagined, right? He, he's fully human, and he's fully divine. And right out of the gate, John kind of sets the stage for that. He says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a few verses later, it says, the Word became flesh or became human and lived among us. And the rest of the Gospel of John, the, re- the whole entire book is about supporting that understanding, that God came in Jesus That when we look at Jesus, we see God, fully human and fully divine. And that's a familiar phrase we say around here all the time, is if you want to know what God looks like, look to Jesus. And that's what's happening in the book of John. But John's getting a little more specific. He says, you want to know what the Messiah looks like? It looks like Jesus. 
In fact, in chapter 5, which we're going to hang out in today, is there's this encounter with this paralyzed man. And after the miracle, John includes some of Jesus' statements. And Jesus says this. It's like a confirmation of who he is. It, it affirms what we already heard in John 1. And it says this in verse 19. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus himself is saying, do you want to know what God is up to? Look at what I'm doing. So as we unpack this encounter today, we're going we're gonna to ask the questions, what does this reveal to us about the Messiah? What does this reveal to us about Jesus, about God? And here's the reality. I have this statement that I want us to, to hold in our, in our brain the whole time we're reading the passage. I want us to hold it there as this. It's that Jesus is greater than the shallow promises of the world and more hopeful than the weight of religious legalism. Again, the promises of the world, he's greater, and he's more hopeful than the weight of religious legalism. Because the encounter we're going to look at here does both of those. We follow a Jesus. We pledge our allegiance to Jesus who is greater than anything this world offers. Any promise of hope or flourishing or life that this world offers, Jesus is greater. And then we worship, we center our lives around a Jesus who is more hopeful, more life-giving than the weight of religious legalism. So as we read John 5, as we unpack this passage about the uh, healing of a paralyzed man and, and, and that happens on a Sabbath, let's keep that in our mind. So let's start in verse 1 of chapter 5. Afterwards, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the Sheep Gate, was the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda. It's kind of a little tricky to say. With five covered porches, crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, they lay on the porches. So what's the deal with the pools? We're going to get a little insight later in the text itself. But tradition is that there, was, there were these pools that when they bubbled up, when they stirred, they brought healing. Now, it only brought healing to the first one who got in there. That, that, was the, that was the tradition. And most scholars believe that this was like a Greek site. It was a, a, a pagan place of worship to a pagan god. And archaeologists would tell you that what's happening is there's underground, the water is meeting, and the way it meets, it causes it to stir. But the pools offered a promise. They offered a promise of healing. And so that's where we pick up in verse 5. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. And I, I just want to stop here because this caught my attention. Um, in this season, it caught my attention especially because I think I'm so mindful of time right now. In COVID time, everything seems longer. Um, but we've, we've been living in, in it for five months. Can you imagine 38 years? I can't. <laughs> I mean, I've already been saying after five months, I, I'm done. I'm ready to be back to normal, let's go, let's go on with our lives. I know a lot of us are saying that. And so this man, is, he's waiting 38 years, 38 years of suffering, 38 years of waiting for his pain to end, to return to previous health, to find some kind of relief. And I think John includes this phrase of years because he wants us to understand the man's desperation, the hopelessness. 
we can assume that this man uh, tried to find ways of healing, multiple ways, because he, here he is now, he's tried all these other ways, and here he is now just hanging out, laying on a mat in, in this mystical, possible place of healing, just waiting for some relief. And then he encounters Jesus. Verse 6 says this, When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mats and walk. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. So we have this very brief encounter, a quick moment that changes this man's life, ends 38 years of suffering. John says that Jesus, knowing how long he had been ill, asked him a simple question. Do you want to get well? And I love it because we know the answer. We know the answer is yes. Yes, you want to get well. But that's not what the man answers. The man answers instead, well, I, I, I don't have anybody. I, I'm waiting by this pool, hoping for a chance, but I have no one. And every time the water stirs, I, I, someone else beats me, so I'm not in it. He just lists the excuse. And Jesus, in a moment, is going to tell him to walk, so we can assume the man cannot walk. He's paralyzed. He's lame. So imagine what this man is really saying. He's saying, I am so hopeless from 38 years of suffering that I sit here and I wait for the water to stir and then I begin to crawl. I begin to crawl my way to the water. But I'm too late every time. But I am so desperate that this hope of maybe one time I'll crawl and I'll be the first one there keeps him right there by the pool. That's not even the question Jesus asked. Jesus didn't ask, why aren't you well? He said, do you want to be well? And hearing his response, Jesus responds, stand up, pick up your mat, and instantly the man's healed, and he begins walking. See, the pools of promise, that promise that there would be healing, it was unreachable. And likely, if he had even gotten to the pools, it probably would have been disappointing. He probably would not have found the healing he was hoping for. Because Jesus is the one. We were, the one we're waiting for, the Messiah, the one who is greater than any promise of any pagan pool of healing, any promise this world offers. But the story doesn't end there. It would be a very nice story if it ended right there. We could wrap it up very nicely, but it doesn't. Let's pick up. It says, but this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. Again, it would have been a nice story, but this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. You can't carry your mat. You're breaking the law. That's work. Today's the Sabbath. It would be really interesting to unpack here the law, because what is the law? What is the commandment that was given? And how did picking up your mat get tied to that? What was the heart of that? But, but that's not, we don't, we don't get that question. We don't get to unpack that here. What we know is that he broke it because he's carrying the mat. So in verse 14 it says, 
But afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, Now you are well, so stop sinning, or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. I think this is a little bit of a confusing passage, a confusing statement maybe said by Jesus. So I want to help us kind of understand, unpack what Jesus was really saying here. You'll recall when we did the first Thessalonians series, uh, Pastor Kara talked about this, the tool of using scripture to interpret scripture. And then Pastor Pat just mentioned a few weeks ago that we understand scripture through the lens of Jesus, through the word we understand the scripture. So in this passage, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of combine those methods. We're going we're gonna to use scripture, specifically the scripture around Jesus's life and teaching to help us understand what is Jesus saying when he says, now you are well, so stop skin, sinning or something or worse will even happen. Is Jesus saying, if you keep sinning, you're going to get sick like you were before? Now, that sounds actually like, to me, something that we have heard normalized in Christian culture, especially uh, American Christian culture, I should say, which it says, if I'm sick, it must be because I have sin in my life. If I can't find healing, it must be because I have sin. But I, I want us to think about Jesus and all his other miracles and something he said once in particular to a blind man. They were asking, Who, why is this man blind? Is it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says, neither. It's so God's glory can be revealed. So Jesus debunks that idea that we're sick, physically sick, because of sin. So is Jesus saying, keep sinning, or you'll suffer eternal consequences after this life is over? Which is another normalized Christian thought, that our salvation is dependent on our behavior. Our works are what get us into heaven. But even just two chapters earlier, we were already in John 3, where Jesus is hanging out with Nicodemus. And the most famous passage of all of scripture, probably, we see it everywhere we go. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. It's belief, it's faith that saves us. Jesus is consistent. Paul is consistent. The New Testament is consistent with that. That we we don't save ourselves. Our behavior does not save us. So Jesus saying, stop sinning, isn't a warning about the afterlife. It's not a warning there. So maybe Jesus is saying, and I would argue that this is probably closer to what's happening here, is if you keep sinning, you're going to experience something in life that is worse than physical pain. That actually being paralyzed or lame is not the worst thing that could happen to you. Jesus says that the thief comes, he says it in John 10, he says, the thief comes to still kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and life to the fullest. And the invitation to this man, which is the invitation to us, is to go and sin no more. Encounter Jesus, encounter Jesus, and allow Jesus to transform you. We're not transformed because we're afraid. If you're a parent, you know fear only works for a little bit. We're not not transformed because we're afraid. We're transformed because we've allowed ourselves to experience Jesus and his love for us. And that begins to transform us more and more like him so we can experience life and life to the fullest. This is truth. Sin leads to a life of hurt. 
Sin leads to brokenness. Sin leads to emptiness. Sin leads to shame. Sin leads to broken relationships and broken systems. But being transformed by Jesus leads to life and wholeness. So we can assume Jesus is saying to this man, listen, what you just, your 38 years of suffering, physical suffering, it's not, it, you'll experience something worse if you keep sinning. You'll experience death, destruction, pain. But Jesus offers something different. So when we approach scripture, we allow Jesus' life to help us understand it better. And so that's how we can approach this text. Maybe a little confusing, but maybe that helps us understand it. And now this man, he gets information, he discovers who it is that heals him, and he reports it back to the religious leaders. And here we have the ultimate standoff between the Jewish leaders and Jesus, between the ones who are waiting for the Messiah and the Messiah, the standoff. It picks up in verse 16. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rule. So Jesus also is accused here of breaking it by healing him. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. The religious leaders here got caught up in the rules, in the, in the legalism. Instead of celebrating the man who had been sick for 38 years, finding healing, they were stuck on the fact that he broke the rules. And, he, and not just that he broke the rules, in, in their mind, Jesus broke the rules. He broke the rules because he, he worked by healing him. And then he made himself equal with God. So remember that phrase we started at the beginning with, that Jesus is greater than the shallow promises of this world and more hopeful than the weight of religious legalism. And this, this encounter shows us both of those things. This, this encounter shows us a Jesus who is greater than any promise this world offers. And in the context of John 5, it's, it's the promise that these pools we, will heal us. In our modern world, we have promises too. We have a lot of promises that offer us healing and wholeness and flourishing in this world. And I want to give you just a couple examples of promises I think we deal with in our world. And the first one right out the gate is really controversial. I know I'm going to upset a lot of people on both sides. You're going to be angry and you're probably going to want to shoot me an email and here's, I, I want to just give you my email address so you have it. So get a pen and get ready to write it down. It's eugene at onedaywages.com. Go ahead and send me an email. Um, but when I was reading this the first time this week, and I was reading and reflecting on the pools, the pools reminded me of the promise of essential oils. That's right. You heard it here, essential oils. Or my kids, as my kids call them, mom's hippie juice, you know? Can lavender help your anxiety? Maybe. Can lavender cure COVID? Well, we're going to keep trying until it does. You know what I'm saying? That is the promise of the oils. Uh, just kidding. That's not the promise I want to talk about this morning. That's not the promise I, of our time. I think the promise of our time, of our world right now, is the promise of happiness in the great American dream. 
that if I get the right job, the right house, the right car, the right spouse, I will find happiness. And we've been sold that promise. The American dream is just like those pools. It promises healing and life and wholeness, but it is an illusion. It's fraudulent. The American dream promises happiness, and yet more Americans suffer from exhaustion, overworked, depressed, anxious, broken relationships. That is where the American dream leads. And at the same time, the American dream, the promise of the American dream, it's not available to everybody. We say that if you work hard enough, if you pick yourself up, you can achieve it. Just like the, pro the promise of the pools, if you can get in there. But just like this man, he's like, I don't have anyone. There's no way, given my circumstances, that I can get there. It's true about the American dream. The promise is there, but it's unattainable for so many. And the author wants us to know, John wants us to know, wanted them to know, and wants us to know that Jesus is greater than any pagan God or pagan promise. Jesus sees the man, he listens to his attempt to find wholeness on his own, and he says, let me offer it to you. Let me clear the way for you. Let me make it possible for you to experience the flourishing that only God can offer. Why does Jesus do that? Because he's the Messiah. He's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. He is the word who was and who is and is. He's the word that becomes flesh, and he's the Messiah. And Jesus is the Messiah. He's, he's greater than any promise this world offers us. He's greater than the American dream. He's greater than anything this world tries to trick us with tries to offer us false hope or a false, a false life or flourishing. It's, it's not real, but Jesus is. And then, Jesus, and, and then in this account, John wants the reader to know that Jesus is also more hopeful than the religious legalism. The leaders would rather this man continue to suffer for 38 years than carry his mat, carry his, his I don't know, it, it can't be more than two pounds, I don't even work out, and I can hold it easily. They'd rather he be suffer one more day than hold this mat on the Sabbath because they're so blinded by the rules. They want to rob this man of the hope and the healing that he's just experienced because for them it was all about following the rules. People following the rules became more, impor more important than people experiencing flourishing. And we see this all throughout the Gospels. And you know what? Nothing else ticked Jesus off more than when the religious leaders got so caught up in the rules. In fact, one time he calls them whitewashed tombs. Here's the deal. On the list of things I don't want Jesus saying to me, whitewashed tombs is one of them. You're beautiful on the outside, but you're still just dead. You follow all the rules. You look good. You look sharp. But inside, it's rotting. There's no life. There's no flourishing, there's no hope, there's no healing for you and definitely not for others. And Jesus sees this man suffering and he demonstrates through healing. Also, believe me, Jesus knew it was the Sabbath. He wasn't confused about what day of the week it was. Jesus, was, he sees this man and he says, look, I'm more concerned with you experiencing life and hope and healing than I am what day of the week is. I'm more concerned. And don't you think Jesus is trying to make a point here? Right? Don't you think he says, he could have just said, stand up and walk. Be healed. 
But he says, stand up and pick up your mat. He knows it's Sabbath. He knows that's considered work by the law. And he tells him to pick it up. I love this because Jesus is a troublemaker. He is a troublemaker. He's out to make trouble here, which reminds me of uh, a great uh, civil rights leader that we just lost this we- this weekend. John Lewis just passed away, and he has this famous quote uh, of when he's talking about the civil rights movement. He says that we need to be up to good trouble, and I think he's following the example of Jesus here. See, Jesus looks, he looks at the man, he looks at us, and he says, I can offer you hope and flourishing and healing better than any rule, better than any religious legalistic system. I can, because you know why? Because Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that's greater. He's the one that's more hopeful and more healing. So today, for us, I have two invitations for us from this encounter. As we look at this encounter in the book of John, We are invited to two things. The first one is this, that Jesus clears the path for us to experience wholeness. Jesus clears the path for for us to experience wholeness. The gift that Jesus offered that man, he offers us. What he offered to that man, he offers us. Do you want to get well? Do you want to know flourishing? I mean, I think we can all list the excuses of why. We don't experience it. We can, make, we, we're, we can just be like the man. Well, I don't have anybody. There's no way for me to get there. But Jesus says, look, no, I'm willing to clear the path for you to him. Clear it to him. Rachel Held Evans says this. She's one of my favorite authors. She says this. When the people of God abandoned the covenant of love and fidelity, drawn as they were by the appeal of shallow, empty pleasures, which is just like the pool's, God removed every possible obstruction to the covenant by being faithful for us, by becoming like us, and subjecting himself to the very worst within us, loving us all the way to the cross and all the way out of the grave. See, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that rescues us. He removes every possible obstruction. We simply have to say yes. When he says, do you want to be well? Yes. So here's the invitation for you. Do you want to experience wholeness? Do you want to experience life? You can say yes. In fact, right now, in the quiet of your heart, would you say, Jesus, I want to receive the wholeness and the healing that you offer. I surrender. I believe. And I pray that each of us would encounter Jesus in a way every day, every moment, that reminds us that we're invited to experience the power of God's love that clears paths for us to him and to life. And if Jesus clears the path for us, then he clears the path for all. Jesus clears the path for everyone, everywhere. And that's our second invitation. As followers of Jesus, we clear the path for others to find wholeness. See, in life, as followers of Jesus, we get to make a choice. We choose. Do we follow the example of Jesus? Uh, even the title uh, Christians, when it was first came up in the early church, Christians was little Christ. Are we, do we follow? Do we look like Jesus by removing obstacles so that people can experience God's love? Or do we love our rules so much we love our rules more than we love our neighbor? That's the choice 
It's really, really that simple. We believe that when people find Jesus, they are transformed by the Holy Spirit who dwells in them. So we clear the path. We remove obstacles. We clear the path by listening. We clear the path by sharing our story. We clear the path through invitation. Again, as Rachel Held Evans said this, the gospel doesn't need a group devoted to keeping the wrong people out. It needs a family of sinners saved by grace, committed to tearing down the walls, throwing open the doors and shouting, welcome. There's bread and wine. Come eat with us and talk. This isn't the kingdom for the worthy. It's the kingdom for the hungry. Over like there are enough walls being built in this world. There are enough doors being closed. The church, the family of God should not be one of those places. We should be opening the door, tearing down the walls. We follow Jesus so we love like Jesus. And to love like he did means we clear it. We clear the way for all kinds of people to experience wholeness, flourishing, healing in God. And to not love that way is for us to risk finding ourselves being just like the religious leaders in this story. We see someone encountering Jesus. We see them finding wholeness and healing and life and love. And what do we do? We're concerned. They're breaking the rules. They're carrying a mat on the Sabbath. Overlake, Jesus has cleared the path for us. Let's be people who clear the path for everyone everywhere to experience and be transformed by the love of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to encounter you. We want to encounter your love. God, we want to know the hope that is greater than this world. The, the, the world offers us so many shallow things, empty promises, but you promise life. You promise flourishing. We want that, God. May we encounter you. And Jesus, may we be moved to be people who clear the path for others. God, where we have loved the rules more than people encountering you, God, would you convict us? Would you move us? Would you break our heart for people who are desperate for you and we have gotten in the way? God, may we be a church for everyone, everywhere, that they would experience and be transformed by your love. In Jesus' name, amen.